The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on their drums. Hello and welcome to another episode of Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. My name is Alex Doherty and my guest today is Andreas Malm. We talked about his new book, How to Blow Up a Pipeline. We chatted about why the climate movement is so fiercely committed to non-violence, even to the point of opposing destruction of property, how that hinders climate activism, and how the advocates of non-violence edit the history of popular struggles and liberation movements in order to downplay the importance of the more militant wings of those struggles. Today's show is brought to you by PTO supporters on Patreon and also by Verso Books, who have lots of excellent titles that may be of interest to PTO listeners. One that you might like to check out is Rontier Capitalism, Who Owns the Economy by Brett Christophers. The book looks at how Britain's economy became a bastion of inequality with the ownership of scarce assets such as land, intellectual property and digital platforms dominated by a few unfathomably wealthy companies and individuals. Frequently invoked, but never previously analysed and illuminated in all its depth and variety, Rontier Capitalism is here laid bare for the first time. It's out now from Verso Books. Visit the website versobooks.com to find out more. Andreas Malm is a scholar of human ecology and the author of The Progress of This Storm and of Fossil Capital, which won the Isaac and Tamara Deutsche Memorial Prize. His other books include White Skin Black Fuel and Corona Climate Emergency, which we talked about in episode 91. So in the book, you write about how the climate movement, with vanishingly few exceptions, has generally resisted the use of deploying physical force to target, damage and and destroy the infrastructure that is destroying the climate. And that instead, the movement has, with a few exceptions, been fiercely committed to nonviolent civil disobedience. Given the scale of the threat now posed by the climate emergency, why do you think there is such resistance to even considering targeted sabotage and property destruction as at least something to discuss as a possible tactic? That is a very good question. Uh, I'm not sure I have a proper answer to it, but the climate movement in the global north, which is the one that we're talking about here, has been quite um, strongly influenced by a particular type of Anglo-American philosophy around social movement praxis. And um, contemporary climate movement in the North uh, emerged to quite a large degree out of 350.org. I'm now talking about the last decade. And uh, then, of course, we have Extinction Rebellion from the UK. And uh, both of these two groups or networks or, or whatever you want to call them have been philosophically deeply committed to pacifism. 
And why is that? Well, one would need to undertake a sociological analysis of the climate movement in these these manifestations of it and others as well, of course, to, to get to the roots of that and understand why the movement has uh, taken this position. But I suspect it might have something to do with uh, what is quite widely recognized as the fact that it's a middle class movement predominantly in the, in the UK and the US and or has come from a particular layer of uh, middle class and white if I dare say so uh, academically based strata of people that have built up these uh, organizations and uh, therefore it has a i mean it has it comes from somewhere else in society than let's say black lives matter or the yellow vests or other social movements, uh, the anti-fascist movement, that, that have uh, different attitudes to tactical questions. Uh, so, I mean, it has been for a very long time a very gentle and civil and meek movement, very modest in its tactics, and I think that has something to do with the with the, with the social consciousness of the people that have formed these uh, these organizations. And just on that point about the global north versus the global south, so you would see a fairly sharp distinction between climate activism in the south versus the north, and, and what is that distinction in your mind? I mean, it's complicated here because, in a sense, the global north is where the climate movement needs to be because it's in the global north that the bulk of the emissions historically has happened and still is happening. So that means that, I mean, the, the fundamental injustice of climate change is that it's perpetrated by the global north and it's the global south primarily that suffers from it. Obviously, it's more complicated than that with, with class uh, divisions within the global south and, and the north as well, for that matter. But broadly speaking, this is the pattern. So if you want to fight this fundamental climate injustice, you need to go after the emission sources in the north. And, you know, to, to, make, to take more concrete examples, people in Yemen or in Burkina Faso or in, in, in Bangladesh that suffer the effects of the climate crisis on a daily basis cannot strike the sources of their suffering because those sources are located in countries like Germany and the US and elsewhere. Obviously, I'm aware of China, but historically and, and still to a very significant extent, these emission sources are in the global north. That means, I think, that the movement in the north has a task to articulate the injustice on behalf, so to speak, of the, of the global south, of the people that are too far away from the emission sources to be able to, uh, to attack them in any way or form. I mean, it, it behooves us in the north then to act as radically as the situation from the global south appears. So the climate movements that we have in the global south are of a somewhat different character. You have obviously lots of struggles around uh, fossil fuel extraction in the global south with local resistance against projects that destroy environments necessary for uh, people's lives and uh, struggles against deforestation 
and all sorts of local struggles around environmental degradation and destruction. But the climate movement that zooms in on global heating as such and goes after the emission sources is a northern phenomenon. Primarily, if you, if you look at the, the school strikes, they were a global phenomenon in 2019, but they were very heavily concentrated in the global north. And in a way, that's how it should be, because the global north is the problem. So the focus in my book really is on what can we in the global north do and how do we escalate and take the fight to a level that corresponds to the injustice and to the ongoing suffering on a daily basis inflicted on the global south. I imagine that some people might hear talk about fighting on behalf of people in the global south that might potentially seem a little bit maybe patronising or, or, or putting people in the global south in a passive role. What would your response be to that criticism? Yeah, well, yeah, that's not the point. It's not, it's not, it's an injustice perpetrated from our countries. And it's not because we think that people in the South are passive victims that we have a duty to resist it. To the contrary, most of the examples that I draw on in the book, examples of struggles against fossil fuel infrastructure come from the global South and the most inspiring struggles over the past decades stem from the global south. So my book is largely an attempt to import some of the militancy from the global south that we've had ever since the anti-colonial revolts began into the global north. So clearly the global south has a much richer tradition in the, let's say, past half century of militant struggle, including sabotage of uh, fossil fuel infrastructure than anything that we have in the global north. So it's not based on a, on a on any idea that that uh, the global south victims in the global south are just passive. But it is the case that those that suffer most from global heating are the people that are farthest away from the concentrated emission sources. Now, that doesn't mean that if, if let's say, if, if I go and blow up uh, a digger in a lignite mine in, uh, in Germany, I am, I'm acting on any kind of explicit mandate from uh, refugees in Yemen who get their tents washed away in a flood or something like that. Obviously, that, that's not how I see it. But there is, if nothing else, an ethical duty for people in the global north to try to stop this climate injustice from being perpetrated. And obviously, there's also a self-interest in trying to prevent a climate catastrophe from spinning completely out of control and burning all of us. And before we get into talking about the, the efficacy of property destruction, first, when we're thinking about acts of sabotage or, or destruction of private property in the context of climate change, what does that look like to you in terms of what infrastructure should be targeted and, and how is that to be done in a way that isn't deleterious to, to people's ability to live and reproduce and so on? Yeah, so <laughs> so my, the book is called How to Blow Up a Pipeline, and I think some people uh, apparently expect uh, expect it to include manual, a manual <laughs> and, and instructions. Yeah, on how, the terrorist handbook. Yeah, exactly, and how to actually blow up a pipeline. <laughs> uh, literally, well, you, you, you that, promised it with the title, Andreas. Yeah, what what yeah, can yeah, you expect? Yeah, sure. yeah exactly, <laughs> exactly. But it doesn't really contain that. But it's it's more a, a general argument for activists in the climate movement and for people that will come into the climate movement in the next few years to use their imagination and their intelligence to try to find good targets for sabotage and as i stress again and again in the book do it carefully so as to avoid harm to people to physical human beings 
and make use of the fact that it's not difficult to reach fossil fuel infrastructure generally in the global north because the US is crisscrossed by pipelines. SUVs are all around us in our cities, particularly in rich neighborhoods, which are entirely open to access. Just walk in and do something with the SUVs. Or, I mean, if you can go to headquarters of Total or Shell or any other oil company and uh, invent some uh, appropriate property destruction there. So I don't know if I have a particular recipe for how to go about this. The book is not on that level, really. Uh, I, I, I think that once activist groups, caters, parts of the climate movement will start to think in, uh, to start to think along these lines, they will find ways to do it. But with a lot of principles that need to be abided by. One of them, the crucial one being, do not harm human life in any way or form. Now, I think another principle that one could try to follow is go after large fossil fuel companies to the greatest extent possible. But as I argue quite extensively in the book, I also think the time has come to go after the properties of rich people. And we are showered with statistics on a weekly or monthly basis, new reports showing how absolutely mind-boggling the amount of planetary destruction committed by a tiny elite of ultra-rich people is. So, for instance, earlier this autumn, we had a report from the Stockholm Environment Institute and Oxfam showing that the richest 1% of humanity has emitted more than twice as much as the poorest have since the 1990s. Since the year 1990, the report said. I mean, that, that's an absolutely dizzying figure. And again, there was a paper published in Global Environmental Change, one of the top journals just the other day, that showed that 1% of humanity is responsible for around half of emissions from the aviation sector. These are figures from 2018, so it's before the pandemic, when aviation was still the fastest growing source of CO2 emissions in the world. And you can go on and go on and go on. And, I mean, come on, folks, where, where is the class struggle? Where is the e ecological class hatred? How long are we going to allow the richest people on this planet to systematically destroy the living conditions of everyone else, the poorest half of humanity in particular that suffers from this? without anyone doing anything about it. It's, I mean, the time, the time has come to go after the private jets, the super yachts, the SUV, the SUVs, all these other luxury machines that serve no subsistence needs whatsoever, but exist to flaunt opulence and thereby actually, I mean, objectively kill other people because that's what they do. I mean, climate change kills people. So these machines are not innocent, and they states treat them as such. States, the, our, our states in advanced capitalist countries, support these machines and make sure that they can expand on and on and on. So it's up to the rest of us to go out and try to dismantle them. I would imagine some people on the left would be, for instance, very comfortable with going after auto companies, for instance, which make SUVs, but might feel a little bit wary about targeting consumers individually. And, and in the book, you talk about a campaign in 2007 in, in Sweden, a campaign targeting SUVs. Activists took to slashing the tires of these vehicles. And I imagine some people might think this is potentially the wrong 
roads to take because it may alienate the public and you can imagine the line that would come from much of the media would be you know okay they're going after the suvs but next it's your little volkswagen or your peugeot or, or, or whatever so yeah, so, so ju- just to clarify, we did not slash any tires. What we did was oh, we did deflate, oh, we that's deflated right. yeah. them. Yeah. Sorry. So we, we <laughs> inserted pieces of gra- I mean, gravel in the valves of the tires so that they were deflated. And I was actually quite gratified because the, the only country where this book has been published so far is France. And precisely this tactic was picked up by activists in France uh, quite soon after the, the book was published. So uh, Extinction Rebellion in Bordeaux went into the r- rich neighborhoods there and deflated 220 SUVs. And yes, you get some of that reaction. You always get that kind of reaction when you in any way challenge the existing order. So, I mean, Extinction Rebellion, when they did their uh, uprising, so-called, in in London, they got a lot of reactions. This is economic terrorism, said said Nigel Farage and things like that. And the Black Lives Matter movement obviously (laughs) met furious reactions from uh, uh, certain corners of American society. So, yes, of course, any kind of uh, uh, confrontation with business as usual is bound to elicit strong counter-reactions. But that is not a reason not to do it. To the contrary, we need to bring out the antagonisms that are built into the climate problem out into the open because there's no way we can make progress on climate if we're not finding a way to overcome the vested interests, as it's called in climate science jargon and the dominant classes, as we Marxists would say, we can just pretend that we're going to solve this issue by being smooth and kind and nice to the material interests that are keeping this uh, fire burning. I don't see how that is a viable path forward to avoid confrontation that might elicit counter-reactions. In terms of the arguments that are made for sticking to a, a program of, of non-violent civil disobedience, so you look at the arguments that, that are made to support that position, and some of those arguments that are made are that pursuing a, a non-violent approach doesn't alienate a broad public, it prevents activists from being sort of isolated and criminalised, and also that it's possible for much larger numbers of people to take part in non-violent actions than to take part in more violent or, or more apparently violent activity. So could you talk a little bit about how you respond to those different claims? I realize there's quite a few there but yeah yeah yeah. i mean i recognize the validity of the claims that you just mentioned i mean it is the case that more people can join non-violent demonstrations than marches that contain elements of property destruction or riots or sabotage performed by small groups or things like that yes that is the case but let's just look at the movement that the one social movement that has really shaken up politics this year, the the movement for Black Lives, I mean that is a resounding rebuttal or even falsification of the whole idea of strategic pacifism, namely that the the idea that as soon as you enter, you you put some kind of violent confrontation or property destruction into the the repertoire, the mix of tactics of a movement, you instantly alienate the masses and condemn yourself to a kind of fringe existence. Now, what happened with the movement for black lives was exactly the opposite. After the murder of George Floyd, the good people of Minneapolis stormed the police station in the third precinct and burnt it to the ground. And that was the catalyst that made this movement leap to 
a scale of mass struggle that it has never reached before. And from that point, the movement contained a diversity of tactics. So you had elements of rioting, you had property destruction, as in groups targeting statues of slave owners and things like that. And you also had enormous, uh, you know, overwhelmingly peaceful mass marches, rallies, demonstrations, and, and, and the whole, I mean, the whole plethora, the whole spectrum of activities. So that is precisely what a movement in the global north that can make a difference because, I mean, the, the Black Lives Matter movement really has made a difference in this year in terms of how we talk about race, but also in terms of extracting actual concrete concessions from parts of the state apparatus in the U.S. in terms of initiatives to defund the police and even abolish it in, in Minneapolis and so on. So the lesson from this movement is one that the climate movement should really take to heart, that is, that elements of targeting the infrastructure that causes systematic violence, be it against black people in the US or against poor people in the global south and in the last instance humanity in general, so fossil fuel infrastructure, targeting that kind of infrastructure should be part of a, a, a mass movement that I'm sure will be, will be overwhelmingly, predominantly peaceful for the foreseeable future, but should also include elements of more meditating tactics, which is precisely the scenario that has been precluded, that has been you know, ruled out by XR and 350, Bill McKibben, and the strategic pacifism that has been dominant in the movement. What, what was so, I think, liberating with the storming of the police station and the burning down of it in Minneapolis was that it showed people that the police in the US is not above the law and it's not above our influence. It's not, it's not an institution that can do whatever it wants. It's actually an institution that we can break into and take physical control over it. And that triggered a break. I mean, it broke the paralysis and sent people out into the streets in numbers that we've never seen before. And I think the climate movement needs precisely that kind of, of moment and break in, if you like, into uh, infrastructure, be it pipelines, be it coal mines, be it uh, headquarters of fossil fuel companies or whatever, something similar that shows people that the fossil fuel, fossil fuel technologies, the infrastructure, the machines that are ruining this planet are not beyond our control. We can actually go in and take control of them. Obviously, th this is something that the climate movement, in particular in Germany, has excelled in. And I'm here thinking of Ende Gelände in particular, the climate camps that, that I consider to be the most uh, potent and most uh, promising form of activism that we've had in the climate movement for the past half decade. And as I say in the book, that model is one that should, should be um, elaborated, expanded, developed and spread across the world, uh, across the global north at least, because it's so incredibly effective. And I think it, ca it, can, it can escalate also. Yeah, I particularly like that point you make in the book. I think around SUVs and high-end consumption generally, there is just something inherently demoralizing if you're concerned about climate, of just seeing these machines running around. And, and it does give you that sense of what is the point if we can't even deal with this very so manifestly unjust and also unnecessary form of carbon emission. It's, uh, yeah, pretty demoralizing. 
Going back to Black Lives Matter and, and, and social movements, so you, you make a, a very interesting comparison in the book between social movements in the United States and in France and the different way in which property destruction has typically been perceived in those two countries. Could you talk a bit about that and also whether you see the Black Lives Matter protests of this year as suggesting that we're seeing a change in, in the difference in, in the two countries? Yeah, so, I mean, th- this book was completed before the whole Black Lives matter movement i mean after george floyd the, the whole uh, conjuncture of of this this movement so uh, i mean that's that's not present in the book it's uh, the the argument around the us is constructed before these events yeah but i mean up until george floyd perhaps there's been an obvious contrast between countries like the us and france where in france a social mo- i mean Everyone knows that in France, riots happen every now and then because that's a country where you have uh, social struggles still. That's a country where you have even working class social movements such as the Yellow Vests erupting almost on a regular basis and uh, making a dent in uh, in politics, even though they're, they're obviously not always successful. But, I mean, there's a, another level of working class combativity still in France compared to most other countries in Europe and I think in the US as well. And if we bracket the George Floyd period, I think the total dominance of uh, the capitalist class in the US and uh, bourgeois politics explains the degree of moral panic that rioting or property destruction tends to provoke in the US. Whereas in France, you have another living tradition of a popular protest and occasionally revolt. That means that that country is more tolerant of that kind of violence. That doesn't in any way mean that, that France as a, as a society and French culture are more violent than, than the US. It's, it's rather the other way around. Uh, American culture is I mean, f- infamously extremely violent in its adoration of guns and, and you know, in, the, in the profusion of arms in the, in the streets and homes of that country, in the, in the level of violence in, uh, yeah, well, from the police force. Obviously, that's the case in France as well. But generally, uh, no one could argue that, f- that the reason that f- French politics is more tolerant of rioting and property destruction is because France is a more violent, generally violent society than the U.S. Rather, it would be the other way around. Now, the interesting thing about George Floyd and the protests that happened after that murder is that this doesn't seem to fit the pattern really, because clearly there was a lot of hysterical reaction to uh, to riots, particularly from the from from the far right, from the president Donald Trump and uh, his supporters. But you had also massive support. I mean, there were polls showing that a majority of Americans even supported the storming and burning of that police station in, in Minneapolis and expressed sympathy for that. Yeah. So I think this needs to be understood against the background of several years of increased social movement activity in the US that has sort of tipped the scales and made more people open to the kind of militancy that was expressed in the early stages of the protests after George Floyd. So I obviously don't think that there is some kind of an essence in American society that it has always been and always will be loath to accept any kind of militant tactics. That's evidently not the case. These things can shift in time. And that's also something that's extremely important for the climate movement to think about. Because what we know of global heating is that the problem as such will only worsen. 
It's an inherently cumulative and deteriorating situation where you will get worse hurricanes, worse droughts, worse floods, and so on and so forth. So this also means that when we think about what tactics to deploy, we need to take this curve into account and I think expect an increasing possibility to gain mass popular support for going after the sources of the problem. Just imagine if some in the Australian climate movement during the wildlife inferno earlier this year had gone into an Australian coal mine and somehow destroyed some of the infrastructure there and sent out to communicate and explain that the, the fires that we're suffering from in this country and that will only grow worse if this continues, these fires are caused by the extraction of fossil fuels, such as coal, that our government in Australia only continues to expand. We can't go on like this. If we don't want the fires to continue, we need to shut the coal infrastructure down. And if our government can't do it, then we have to do it <laughs> ourselves and eventually force states to do what's necessary. I think that, that uh, coming extreme weather events will uh, uh, hand the climate movement lots of opportunities for that kind of struggle and the movement needs to learn to take those and use those opportunities. It hasn't done so in any way so far. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. If you would like to hear the extended version of today's interview and of other PTO shows, then please consider becoming a supporter. You can get access to extended versions of PTO episodes from £3 a month. And if you're outside the UK, you can also now support the show in US dollars or euros. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. Thanks for listening.